you will, turn back in your Bibles or whatever copy of God's Word you have to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus 32, as we continue in our excursion through the wilderness sojourn with the people of God. And uh, as you guys know, we have for the third time sat upon the 10th encampment of the children of Israel's journeys and journal. That's another way to put it, a journey and journal of the children of Israel on their way to the promised land. For those of you who know your Bible, you know the Old Testament and the New Testament are really a composite of one overarching theme and reality. This is what we call teleology or theology proper or biblical theology. This is a book about who? Him. Him being Jesus, him being the true and the living God, and the themes running through scripture are lessons for our life. This is Romans chapter 15, 4. Those things that were written aforetime were written for our learning, not merely to look back, but to look now in order to look forward. And then Paul said it again in 1 Corinthians 10, we'll be there shortly. He said that they are written as examples to warn us not to engage in evil things as they did. What that means is New Testament people, New Testament Christians, New Testament churches, New Testament folk. And we've been in the era of the New Testament ever since Christ died and rose again from the dead. You and I have the uncanny capacity to do the same evils that the children of Israel did. This is why we believe that we are all equal in this sense. We are equal sinners in the sight of God. We are equally prone to evil, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love and it ought not to be taken lightly. There are consequences for our disobedience before God. There are a lot of lessons in our text today. I'm probably only going to get through a few of them and may God give you grace to hear me. May he give you grace to hear. The first thing you and I want to remember is if we're going to make it through these, this crazy world, we're going to have to be able to think right, feel right, and then act right. There's no right acting where there's no right feeling, and there's no right feeling where there's no right thinking. And we don't get that out of order. This is a trifecta. It's not feel first and then think secondly. It's think first. And then feel, may your feeling be advised by your rational, right, proper, and God-honoring thinking. Then you will act right. Today, there are a number of lessons I want to call your attention to. The first, I'm going to do a sort of a soliloquy right now. Give me 30 days. Give me 30 days. And I will take the people of God who swear they love God and will live for him forever, and I will induce them to sell God out for idols. Give me 30 days, and I will persuade the people of God to throw their Bibles away and manufacture gods that are not real at all. Give me 30 days, and I will unhinge the people of God from the very experience that they had for which no other people on the planet ever had. And I will induce them of their own volition to fabricate a postmodern, irrational fantasy of a false God and bow down and say, these be our gods. 
they will lead us to the promised land. Give me 30 days and I will prove that men and women that don't take God serious will not find God in the day of trouble. Give me 30 days and I'll prove to you that men and women under temptation and trial, apart from the grace of God, will abandon God out of their own emotional fears and anxieties and wants and lust and embrace a God that does not exist in order to deliver them to a place they cannot go. I'm speaking for our diabolical adversary, who obviously is behind this event, driving the whole nation of Israel to do something that is astonishing. So astonishing in the archives of the Jewish culture, they know that this was a defining event for the children of Israel in the wilderness. They know this marked out that the vast majority of the people here at this event never knew God, even though they saw everything that they did just 30 days earlier. Our title is Arise, Move, and Go. That's our theme. And that's coming out of John 15, 31. And you guys know what that's about. That's about Jesus saying to his disciples, rise up, let's go. We have a destiny, we have a purpose, we have a plan, and we have a goal. But you and I are only going to accomplish that as we pass through the trial of the cross. And on the other side of the cross, God will grant us power and grace to preach the gospel and men and women will be brought to a saving knowledge of Christ. Arise, move and go then is the call that all of us have as we serve God in this crazy world, trying to follow him according to his word and according to his spirit. But sometimes you and I are gonna be challenged, particularly when we're sitting in an encampment and we fail to realize where we are is where God wants us to be. And sometimes we get fidgety and sometimes we get distracted and sometimes we're inclined to want to actually create an imperative within ourselves to arise, move, and go. Verse 1 of our text will help us understand what I'm talking about. Now, what we have here is a paradigm. This is called a model. Uh, a paradigm is a model of something that it represents. We have a paradigm of the period between the death of Christ on Friday and the resurrection of Christ on Sunday. We have a model of how easily the whole body of believers can collapse and fall away the moment that they're dealing with a visual tragedy that doesn't make sense to them. This is a picture of how all the disciples said, we go a fishing. We also have a bigger optic here, if you guys are interested in being theologically sound, of the space between the first ascension of Christ into glory and the second coming of Christ at the final time of destination. This window of which has been now 2,000 years, we saw him go up into glory, the apostles said, on a cloud. He will be coming back next time in power. Well, according to our account, these very same people saw Moses go up the mount into the glory of the living God as their mediator but he's coming back now in condemnation as their judge. Do you have the framework? 
Now we got to go to work because there are a ton of lessons for you and I to learn. Just so many lessons. Lord, may my people hear the point that we make today. Point number one, the high crime of idolatry. The high crime of idolatry. Now that doesn't move us much because as you heard our elder saying, we are idol making factories. We're not moved by that. It should, it should break our heart every day when we incline ourselves to creating something as a substitute for the glorious God made in the image of men and things and in our own carnal predilections and passions. We ought to feel alarmed about that, but it's so common to us to do that we're not moved by the idols that we construct in our minds and our thoughts. But the high crime of idolatry is what we got here. Now, didn't these people just hear God speak for himself just a few weeks earlier in Torah with the 10 words of God when he says, I am the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt you shall have no other gods before. Didn't they just hear that three weeks ago in the sermon that God himself brought? You see what I meant by give me 30 days and I can get men and women who swear they met God to then turn around and say, God is dead. This is a subtitle of our message. Moses is dead. Do you guys have that in your outline? Moses is dead. Now, for those of you who know the doctrine of mediation, Moses represents God. So to say that Moses is dead is to say that God is dead. This is Nietzschean philosophy. For those of us who understand enlightenment philosophy, when Nietzsche said God is dead, he was looking around his world and recognizing that men and women were living like God doesn't exist. And I'm saying the generation I live in, they live as if Jesus is not on his throne as if he is not the mediator of the world, and if God doesn't exist. Am I making some sense? And yet they're religious people. They go to church every week. See, so you can be externally religious, but practical atheist. And that's what we got going on here. I'm teaching you something for you to learn here. We're getting ready to go into the rabbit hole, so you're going to have to really hold on and learn some things, because the word of the Lord is really not to be played with. The scriptures are speaking so powerful to us the high crime of idolatry. And the New Testament lays it out like this because we don't quite get the whole concept of fashioning idols. We'll talk about more of that in a moment. But Colossians chapter three, verse five and six says this about New Testament idolatry, the idolatry that has to do with you and me. Here's how Paul puts it. He says, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. So you wanna know the key for overcoming the idolatry that is emerging in your heart? It's the doctrine of mortification, which we don't like in West Western culture. In Western culture, we don't want to die to nothing. We don't want to die to anything. We don't want to die to our vices. We don't want to die to our addictions. We don't want to die to our traps. We don't want, we don't want to have to suffer to be set free from our struggles. But that is the essence of the Christocentric message. The cross of Christ is the way you and I are liberated from bondages, gins, and snares. Am I making some sense? But because we don't have a cross theology in our sanctification, we're often never, ever seen the liberty that you and I should have from the internal idols that strap us down like Samson was strapped by Delilah. Remember that? 
We cannot be delivered unless we understand that it's going to take a dying to that thing by the grace of God to liberate me once again to who I am in Jesus. So here's what Paul says. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. What are they, Paul? Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and what? Covetousness, which is what? That's half of the Decalogue. That's half of the Decalogue. And sum all of those up. And what that is, is really the fundamental makeup of human beings in terms of their passions. So you and I are constantly struggling with this cadre of characteristics as human beings, particularly in a world that's telling you it's all about you. Am I making some sense? And so it's important for you and I to understand that idolatry is not the old-fashioned external mechanism of some arduous labor of making some idol out of wood, hay and stubble and silver and gold and all that. That is simply an external expression of an internal reality. And I want to work that through with you today because God is teaching us some major lessons about not where Israel was, but where our whole world is today. Our whole world fits the paradigm of the rebellion and disobedience of the children of Israel against the true and the living God, particularly Western culture. Western culture knew God at one point propositionally, historically, in terms of our morals and ethics and our Judeo framework. It knew God and then it abandoned God and whosoever abandons God will be turned into what? That's where we are today. So let's look at the mechanisms because they're there under point number one, the high crime of idolatry. Subpoint A says a failure to do what? See God truly by faith. To see God truly by faith. Pastor, while you're saying that, do you remember just in the previous message, the title was Arise, Move, and Go, They Saw God. Do y'all remember that? Just a minute ago, not only did Moses see God, not only did Joshua see God, not only did the 70 elders see God, but the whole of Israel saw the glory of God. Did they not? This is Exodus 24. Look at it briefly at verse 20, uh, verse uh, 16. Notice this, Exodus 24. And the glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai. That was a symbol of his presence, was it not? And the glory of the Lord abode upon, upon Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called unto Moses out of the cloud. Remember, Moses was at the height, Joshua in the middle, the rulers lower down on the mountain, and the Israelites are on the plain. Notice the next verse. Here it is, verse 17. And the sight of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire, on the top of the mountain, what? In the eyes of the children of Israel. They saw God's symbolic presence on the top of the mountain, did they not? They saw the rulers closer than they were. They saw Joshua at another ascent upwards and they watched Moses go up into the presence of the Lord. Were they privileged? Did they have a vision that most people don't have? Now it's time for you and I to learn how you and I can be privileged with revelation and it never change your life. It never changes your life. Here I'm bearing record with God that they saw the glory of God. 
Now, can I say something? Where they were in the uh, Sinai Peninsula, they had a whole lot of room and territory. They were surrounding the mountain. Remember, there are millions of people, so they're spread out wide. But the mountain is high enough for everybody to see the cloud six days, everybody to see the fire. So everybody had a common revelation of the presence of God symbolically, did they not? Can I say something? God never moved. The cloud was still there in our account. The fire is still on top of the mountain. What happened to the mind and perception and reason and conclusions of the people who just a few weeks earlier saw God reside on the mountain in his cloud and in his fire, and now all of a sudden they're saying his servant is dead, which is the same as saying God is dead. How do you go from seeing God to not seeing God? Isn't that a good question? Well, you go from seeing God to not seeing God when you really did not see him at all. That's the first uh, point I'm trying to lay this out for us. A failure to see God truly by what? See, without faith, it's not only impossible to please God. Don't, Don't ever turn that into an idle proposition. But without faith, it's impossible to see God. You've got to see God by faith. Listen, there were a lot of people who saw the God-man with their physical eye, but never saw who he was with their spiritual eye. Am I making some sense? I'm here to assert that it is extremely probable and plausible that men and women can have a grand narrative manifestation of God on an intellectual level and even on a physical empirical level. But if the heart doesn't have an illumination of the revelation of God's glory deeply embedded in them as reality, just as soon as you blink, you'll lose a vision of God. And this is what's going on in our account. There's some lessons here. There's some lessons here I need to teach you under point number one that's going to take some time. We've got three subpoints. The first is a failure to see God truly by faith. We, I've just argued this in Exodus 24, 16, and 17. Now, I can tell you Moses saw God by faith. The Hebrew writer puts it like this in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24 through 27. I'm just going to use Moses as an example. And may I say, as we look at this text, Moses becomes a model for you and I. Meaning, everyone who truly knows God is coming to him. We are coming to God by faith. God is drawing us. We are coming to whom coming as unto a precious stone. Is Jesus precious to us? Are we coming by faith to him? If we are, God is drawing us. Is that what the Bible says? No one can come to me except the Father which sent me, Jesus says, draw him. And the life of the Christian from faith to sight is coming to God. The life of the Christian from the moment that God graces you to believe on him, which is a life of faith, is coming to God. Because one day the beatific vision is what we want, to see him Face to face. We have the, the, the space, our proximity between the time we were converted until the time we see him face to face to walk by what? And where we are not walking by faith, ladies and gentlemen, idols are running our life. This is what our text is teaching us. 
By faith, Moses, when he was coming to years, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Do you know what that means? He owned his identity in Jehovah. Even though he had all the wealth of Egypt and was poised to be the next prime minister, he rejected it because his identity was he was a Hebrew. He was a son of Abraham. He was a child of the living God. You see the battle we're fighting? Whose God is your God? This will determine your identity. Look at the next verse. Look at the next verse. He was choosing rather to do what? Suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. See my point? See my point? See, everything is about a choice. This is why I said you got to think right. Then you got to feel right because your emotions are critical to motivating you to act. But you're not going to act right if you're not feeling right. And if your feeling is all jacked up, it's probably because your thinking is all jacked up. And you can never move towards God unless you're compelled to move towards God by grace with your whole heart. If you seek me, you shall find me when you shall seek me with all of your heart. That means I'm compelled with the totality of my being to seek God. That's what David says. Lord, you said seek me. And I, my heart says, Lord, I will seek your face. And that's why God said of David, he was a man after my own heart. Are y'all following what I'm saying? So there's some lessons here for us to learn because I want to map them onto where you and I are today. Israel is no different than you and me. Moses here is proven that God has called him. I don't believe that about the 70 that, we, that were with him in the mount. I don't believe that they were called. I also know that Aaron was not yet anointed because Aaron is acting a plain fool right now. There's a difference between being called and anointed, okay? You need to first be called, but you got to be anointed to come. No one's coming to God without being anointed by the spirit of the living God. You must be covered in Christ's righteousness and then compelled by grace to know that you have a standing with God to come. Men and women who don't have a real knowledge of their standing won't come. They'll come to church, but they won't come to God. And most of the time they won't come to church. Y'all keeping up with me? Right. This is a distinction you're about to see because there's going to be a division that goes on in a horrible judgment, isn't it? Moses then serves for us as what we should be striving for in the person of Christ. It's really absolutely astonishing. Moses is temporarily gone. And what generated this group's opinion? Why did they so quickly move into the notion that they did? Look at verse one. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mountain, y'all see that? Now, again, being grammatically sensitive, I understand what, what the writer is saying here, and I want you to capture it. Now, when the people, and God is doing this on purpose, he's showing you how the people see things. How the people see things as a group, as a collective. When, when the people saw that Moses did what? Moses did what? Moses did what? I want you all to get that. This is their assessment. This is their judgment. This is their conclusion. This is their fabricated assertion. This is their assuming that they can go up into heaven and see what's going on between Moses and God and then draw a conclusion that Moses is late. I got a timetable and Moses should be back by now. You keeping up with me? They asserted that Moses had delayed his coming 
which gives us insight into the narrowness of their own arrogance around their assertion that they have a right to put a time frame on what God is doing. I'm here to tell you people do it all the time. If we break this down again into the kind of microcosmic trials that you and I have, a lot of times you're upset with God because God ain't coming when you want him to come. He's not acting when you want him to act. He's not doing it the way you want him to do it. And when God's late in terms of your clock, now you're going to take the bull by the horns. Now you're going to construct your own reality. See what I'm getting at? Now, this is extremely important for you to get because when people are operating in that kind of vacillating, narcissistic, self-centered mindset, you can easily be deceived emotionally. And that's where my culture is today. It's deceived in the sense that it is constructing a false reality, asserting things to be one way when in fact they are not that way at all. Did y'all hear what I just said? And you, if, you, if you and I sit on the text, you know what we have to do with the text? We have to go, how long did it take for 1.3 million people to get the news that the narrative, the stated news narrative now is Moses has delayed his coming? How long did it take and what kind of inner dynamics of, di- of conversations and dialogues took place at the local level among two people or three people or ten people? How long and what kind of dynamic took place between the echelon of leadership? Because leadership is obviously absent here. What were they doing? How were they engaging the people? How were they helping the people maintain a proper vision of God? They weren't. Y'all hearing what I'm saying? You're getting ready to see something in the text that is going to help you understand how the enemy works and where you and I are today. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mount, the people gathered themselves together. Did you see that? Now, this is quite fascinating of the language. What this means is they started a kind of mob riot. Literally in the Greek grammar, in the Hebrew grammar, it says, and they gathered together in a feverish pitch against Aaron. Look at the text. And they gathered themselves together unto. See that preposition unto? It really means against, against Aaron. And when, he, when they came up on Aaron, like the mob is doing today, you know how they run up on people? They ran up on Aaron and they were telling Aaron something that was not true. I want you to hear it because now you're looking at what is going on today in terms of inverting truth. The inversion of truth by postmodern irrationalists using power dynamics to change reality by implementing words with fear and threat and then toppling leadership and forcing leadership to comply with their demands. Anybody keeping up with me? The word of the Lord is right and all of his works are done in truth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. His word is a light and it will show you how the enemy works. If you're willing to listen. Now, notice what it says. It says unto him up. Do y'all see that? Our elder missed it. He should have caught it because God gave us that term for a reason. Up. That's the title of our series. Arise, move and go. Saints, listen. Israel wouldn't be 10 journeys in if God didn't say to Moses, arise, move and go. 
And then to Aaron, arise, move, and go. And then beat Pharaoh down for a whole year, destroying his gods. And then on the first day of the new year, tell the people of God what? Arise, move, and go. And you guys have heard this now 10 times. Now all of a sudden, the people are in authority. They're the ones telling leadership to arise, move, and go. Y'all got that? I can tell you Karl Marx is celebrating in his grave right now as the proletariat has toppled the leadership and is exercising tyranny from the ground up. That's what's going on in my world today. I'm teaching a lot of you guys. You guys understand this is not some kind of organic process going on. This is strategic, diabolical ideologies that are moving people from the ground up. I, I would much rather say from the ground lower because it's coming from hell. But the people are testing everyone who is not truly anointed and toppling them. Every man, woman, every authority, every institution, every, every, every uh, government, political, social, G, uh, NGO company that is not rooted by God, as, as, Moses, as, uh, as John the Baptist said it in Jesus, every tree that my father has not planted is getting uprooted. And Marx knows that. So when men and women are not grounded in Jesus and, and these barking moms come at you, you can't stand unless you're grounded in Christ. You cannot stand unless you're grounded in Christ. The only way to face the mob is in the shelter of Christ. So very important. May God open your eyes because people are, you see, I remember I told you, either you and I are operating out of the antagonist of scripture or the protagonist. Either we're on God's side in the narrative or we're on the enemy's side, right? It's uncomfortable right now because you and I have to wake up to what Moses is about to say when he sees what God told him. Because see, right now, Moses don't know what's going on. God has told him, and when he sees it, Moses is going, He's going to say, all right, everyone that's on the Lord's side, come over here. Because it's about to go down. That's called real manhood. That's called biblical masculinity. That's called holding the line. Everybody's going to hell if we don't stand for God. Everybody's going to hell. Y'all keeping up with me? All right, got more work to do here, more work to do. I just want you to grasp what's going on. This is a remarkable case. Notice what it says. He said unto him, up, make us gods, which shall go before us. I'm just, see, this is why I'm telling you. Watch this. Make us gods. You can't possibly be a believer in the true and the living God with that kind of request. And then watch what he says, what they say. Make us gods which shall go before us. For as this Moses, now I want you to hear this, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt. There it is. This is why I've said for so long, the danger of leadership putting their trust in people is asinine. You see how quick, see how quick you can put a pastor on a pedestal? A preacher on the pedestal. Now, all of a sudden, y'all don't see God. Y'all just see the preacher. 
all of this is going on in our world all the time, particularly in our crazy, maniacal Pentecostal churches where the great man of God or the great woman of God is lifted up. Am I making some sense? There's none great but God and there's none right but Christ. And whenever you are being drawn into the glory of God by sound teaching and sound preaching, you devote your heart to God. You thank God for the servant, but you never settle on the servant because otherwise you're going to blame him or her for your salvation. Now, you see what these people are doing? They're completely ignoring God. They have censored God. They've censored God. God's not in the conversation, is he? This is what's going on today, right? When you censor somebody, you kill them. They have censored God, and now they've condemned Moses. They've condemned Moses with a postmodern, irrational lie because they don't know that Moses is dead. They're making that assertion. This is the unreal that goes on in our world every day. This is called the unreal, and I'm teaching you guys that right now. What you're seeing today is a fabrication of unreal things and you're being forced to call them real. So you're seeing external idols across the plethora of everything that's taking place in our world. We are fabricating all kinds of idols and we are saying that's real and what God has done is not. May God open your eyes. This is why the Bible is teaching you what it's teaching you. The man which brought us up out of the land of Egypt. Sorry, folks, Moses didn't bring you up. God brought you up. But the problem is you don't see it. And this is why people don't act like there's a God. Because of point number one, sub point A, a failure to see God truly. Sub point B, this is quite interesting. Sub point B, the presumption of manufacturing a false what? That was my point that I'm, I'm developing. It's so critically important. Look at verse 3. Go back to verse 3 and 4. I'm getting ready to drill down in and show you something else on a much more psychological and therefore more sociological and spiritual level because you must know your Bible is relevant. See, today you're being told it's not relevant. Is your Bible relevant? Watch how deep we go. Watch how deep we go. Here it is. And all the people, go back to verse 2. Go back to verse 2. And Aaron said to them, break off the golden earrings which are in your ears, the ears of your wives, sons, and daughters, and bring them unto me. Aaron has capitulated, hasn't he? He's he's straight up bought into a vision that does not correspond with truth. And as a leader, rather than him submitting himself to the mob, which Exodus 21 said, you shall not follow a multitude to do evil. The last person to do that should be leadership. And here's leadership following a multitude to do evil, is he not? That means, mo- that means Aaron was shaky. I told you, he might have been called, but he was not yet what? Anointed. Because once you're anointed, you do not fear men. You might shake, but you do not fear men. I'd much rather fear God than fear men. Now listen to what's going on, because there's something to learn here. You need to learn this. Here it is. Break off. Go back, please. Break off the earrings which are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. I'm not going to stay here long. I want you to offer your children on the altar of sacrifice to create a new God. I'm not going to stay here long. 
you can drill down into the inference and application. It's very clear because what's going on is the body. Remember, the battle is for the body. For those of you who keep up with me in studies, the battle is always for the body. The worship is in the body. Everything we do is in the body. Your body is designed to serve God. When the enemy can get a hold of your body and take parts from your body, which is what's going on today, you are allowing yourself to serve a false god. Moreover, what's going on here is a, what is called a recapitulation of a principle that God laid down. When God brought Israel out of Egypt, he allowed them to plunder the Egyptians. That wasn't reparations, that's another story, but he allowed them to plunder the Egyptians to demonstrate that God had won the battle. And whenever you win the battle, the enemy must give up the goods. And God gave Israel all kinds of gold and silver and precious stones, did they not? So for those of you who need a short version, he did not give the people of God those wealth and riches for them. It's not about them. He gave them the wealth and riches in order that they might build a glorious tabernacle in the wilderness to be a representation of the presence of God as they make their way to the promised land. Y'all keeping up with me? And that's exactly what Exodus 25, just a few chapters back, was, was the instruction that God had told Moses to tell the people. Give me your earrings. Give me your gold. Give me your silver. Give me your brass. Give me your yarn, your linen. Give me all of your fine linen. Give me, because we now have to build a tabernacle. It is a clear symbol of what kind of sacrifice we are all called to be committed to when it comes to building God's church. May I just give you the caveat I taught you before. You are not engaging in building God's church if you are not sacrificing. You are not engaging in building God's church if you're not. Sorry, please get this. Please get this. Worship is always about sacrifice. If God is calling you and I, to uh, bring lambs and, and, and bullocks. Those are part of our, 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 our produce. Those are part of our, our, our commonwealth. You bring that to worship as a sacrifice. You give back to God what God gave to you. You give back to God what God gave to you. Do I have to drill down into this or do you get it? So no one comes to worship empty-handed, especially not the men because the men are leaders in the church. They come giving because they have received. They come giving because they have received. No one properly understands worship if all they're doing is to come to receive. That's clear to me you've not been born again. It's clear to me you don't know what worship is. Am I making some sense? And if God has won the battle and given you the spoils and he's simply saying, I want a portion of it for the glory of my name, in a sanctuary that I'm going to abide in, there shouldn't be any arguing on the part of the people of God. Now here is what is astonishing to me. Aaron is duplicating what God had told Moses and Aaron to do just a few chapters back for God, and now they're doing it for the devil. Do you see it? Do you see it? Remarkable. Now we got to learn what it means to worship the devil. Because that's what this account is about. I'm sorry. No, I'm not sorry. That's just called being politically correct. Because I care. Because I'm always amazed at how Christians 
don't want to hear God's word when it comes to their behavior. We don't mind hearing it about other people, but we don't want to hear it when it comes to ourselves. Right. And so this is important for us to get what God is getting ready to show us is how we can wake up serving the devil and he will take from us to glorify himself. And he will cause us to change the true and the living God, exchange him for a God of gold and silver and physical things, wood, hand, stubble, creeping things, birds of the air, and even mankind. This is what we're doing today. And what we must see is how that you and I are trapped by the same demonic deception unless the Lord is liberating us. This is quite, uh, quite remarkable because the presumption of manufacturing a false idol also requires a certain level of emotional attachment. Look at verse four. Notice what verse, I'm sorry, go to verse three now. Let's keep going. Verse three, start verse three. And all the people break off their golden earrings, which were in their ears and brought them unto Aaron. Verse three simply says they were zealous in what they did. Notice they didn't argue with Aaron. Notice they didn't debate. They hurry up and gave. They hurry up and gave. Why? Because they want a God of their own liking. They have now just devised a God in the collective consciousness of the group, right? They have all said, this is the kind of God we want. And they're telling, telling Aaron, bring that God to fruition. And, and if I had time, I would help you understand that Aaron knew exactly what kind of God they wanted. Because they were all in Egypt for 430 years. The only God that could have come up in their imagination was the gods of Egypt. This is Egyptology. The bull god is one of the central gods of the Egyptians. They have now changed the glory of the invisible God that showed up in fire and a cloud and have now zoomorphed God into a bull god, which is nothing but Egyptian worship. This is where we are today in our culture as well. And many of our churches are worshiping a neo-Egyptian ideology. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. It's very clear. Oh, and they did exactly what he said. Look at verse four. Look at verse four. I got you for a little while. Look at verse four. And he received them at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool after he had made it a molten calf. And they said, here it is. These be your gods, O Israel, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Settle there for a moment, because if you don't, you won't get the reason for which the next event occurs. So what has just happened here is that Moses has been mobbed by a group of people who have fallen prey to a strong delusion. This is what your Bible teaches. You and I are subject to it. The whole group has fallen prey to a strong delusion. And now because they're operating out of a kind of weak political paradigm, the leadership, rather than being prophets of God, are nothing but politicians. And politicians do what the people say. See, this is called anarchy, and this is called godless democracy. So the people are telling Aaron what kind of God they want, and he's made it for them. Aaron made it for them. He didn't just have a concoction out of his head. He knew that these people loved Egypt. But now why are these people so passionately and furiously and emotionally driven to do what they did? I want you to capture this. This is back in verse 1. 
back in verse 1. And when they saw that Moses had what? Delayed. The term there literally means, and when in their perception that he was gone too long, they became offended. Literally, the Hebrew term is meaning ashamed. Let me show you what I mean by that. This is Judges chapter 3, verse 24 and 25. The Hebrew word here, delayed, literally means to expect something and then to be disappointed when it doesn't happen and be ashamed of the fact that it didn't come to pass. And that shame then leads you to anger. It leads you to fury. It leads you to frustration. It leads you to want to act out. Did anybody get what I just stated? I'm going to say it again just in case you are listening. The delay impacted them at the emotional level, a delay that they had constructed. God didn't tell Moses how many days he would be up in the mount. He didn't tell Moses to tell the people how long he was up there. It doesn't matter how long Moses is up there. Moses is up there with God. You don't tell Moses to come down unless you actually think you have more authority than God. You're going to put God on a timetable. Then when he doesn't come through, you're going to get upset with God. That's what the term means. They got upset. This was the account in the judges where Brother Ehud actually went at the king of Moab, Ekline. Y'all remember that? And he had a secret errand to run. And he went into the uh, chamber of the king and all the servants were outside. Y'all remember that? Most of y'all don't because you don't know your Bibles. All of the servants were outside and these two leaders are having a conversation. The leader of the Moabites who had dominated the children of Israel and God was delivering them. Remember what I taught you? God doesn't deliver the people by many people. He delivers them by savior types. So so, uh, Ehud is in there having a conversation, but Ehud has a special message for him, does he not? And when he gives Eklon, the big heavy brother, a, a present because the ungodly love riches. The ungodly leaders take bribes. Hint, hint. The ungodly leaders take bribes. They want money. Hint, hint. And yet Ehud is the servant of the Lord. And as he gives him the gift with one hand, the left-handed brother comes through. Y'all know the account. The, The one strike went all the way in so full he couldn't get the knife out. He said, I'll leave it there. And he went out the back door. And the parlor is shut. And the servants are standing there. And it's three o'clock. Four o'clock, five o'clock, and they're going, man, they've been in there a long time. Listen to what the text says. And when he was going out, his servants came, and when they saw, saw that, behold, the doors of the parlor were locked, they said, surely he covers his feet in the summer chamber. Two ways to see that. Sleeping, covering your feet, or using the bathroom. Okay, that's, that's the Old Testament metaphor. That's what it means. Because what's coming out of your bowels is coming between your feet, and the goal is to cover it teaching you something, okay? So you don't mess with a person when they're doing either, obviously, (laughs) particularly the king, right? So if the king got a problem with bowel movements, you're going to be there for however long the king needs to handle his business. And they tarried until they were delayed. There it is. See, a delay can bring you to a point where you're tested by how long it will be. And now you're going through all kind of mental, mental conniptions. 
Now you're struggling with how to think. Now you're losing the ground of reality because you're entering into a kind of emotional fabrication of assumptions of what's going on. Am I making some sense to you? Now you're allowing your feelings to dominate your rationale. And if you let your feelings dominate your rationale, your volitions, your actions are going to be wrong. And the enemy loves to redefine human beings in terms of how you feel rather than who you are and how you think. That's exactly where we are today. You got it now. That's what's going on. Rebellion has taken place. Mutiny on the bounty has taken place in Exodus 32 because people love, love to have it their way. What's, how come they didn't just pray? How come they just simply didn't go to leadership and let leadership matriculate its way back up to Joshua and say, Joshua, the people are disturbed down here. Can, can we get a, a text to, to Moses and maybe Moses can, can let us know, you know, if there's a timetable? They didn't even do that. But that was on the part of leadership not cultivating a continuation of the revelation that they had back in chapter 24. The goal is to sustain the revelation. Sustain the revelation. Am I making some sense? They saw God's glory in chapter 24. Didn't we learn that? Shouldn't the leadership have said, now you know you saw his glory. It's still there. God's still there. Can you not see him by faith? Do you not know that he's present? We don't have to act in rebellion. See what I'm getting at? So they are guilty too of this high crime of idolatry that we now have to work through more fully. Point number three in our outline, a revolt against what? True worship. That's what's going on here, a revolt against true worship. This is Exodus 25, verses one through eight. I shared that with you a moment. I'm gonna give you a few verses. This is remarkable. God had already given them his his 10 words, And then when they wanted Moses to get the instruction, because remember, they didn't want to hear from God. So Moses is the one going up. Moses is telling, uh, God is telling Moses what to tell the people. And in chapter 25, the people are ready to give in order to build the tabernacle. Now they're going to do it again. This is Exodus 25, 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses saying, verse 2, speak unto the children of Israel that they bring men, what? Of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart shall you take my offering. Verse 3. And this is the offering that you shall take of them. Ah, gold, silver, brass, as I told you. Verse 4. And blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen and go tell how. How come? Because what we're doing is building a tent. A big tent, a mobile tent for worship. And it must not only be durable, goat's hair, but it must be splendid in its representation of heaven, that is the blue, and it must represent the atoning work of Christ, that's the crimson. And then it must be gilded with gold and silver because that represents the nature of God. The gold, his deity, the silver, Christ's atoning work as silver is purged in the crucible. So Christ is purged for our sins. This is the triune God in his glory present in the tabernacle. And we as priests get to draw near and serve God in his tabernacle. That's why the garb the priests wore also represented and had all of those colors in it too because they are mediating for God on the behalf of the people. Did that make some sense? But everybody is to participate in the giving and supporting of this gospel revelation. 
They did that in chapter 25. Now look at what we're doing in chapter 32. This is called the apostasy of the church. Where we are is the apostasy of the church. Did anybody get what I just stated? That's where you and I are today. The apostasy of the church. Rebellion against God. This is why leadership in the church doesn't care what the Bible says. Your Bible can lay out all kind of rules all kind of parameters, all kind of delineated demarcations as to who is is properly called to leadership, how we properly worship, what is the nature and character of the doctrines of the gospel, the person and work of Christ, how to properly interpret scripture, what justification, sanctification, and glory is. We know all these things biblically, and the churches are not doing them. It is like a woman who's married to a husband and not doing what he tells her. Israel has just gotten married to Jehovah just a few chapters back. Jehovah said, I will provide for you, I will protect you, and I will produce through you. All you need to do is obey me. Did y'all get that? And you see what they did? They just flipped the tables on God. This is what we call a modern woman today. I'm not going to go into that real deep, but this is what we call the modern woman today. This is Jeremiah, this is Isaiah chapter 4, by the way. Seven women will take hold of one man. And they'll say, we want to be called by your name to have a covering, but we'll make our own money. We'll eat our bread, own bread, and we'll provide for our own water. We just want your name. That's what's going on today as it did with Israel. So our churches are not obeying God. Are you hearing me? They are bought into idolatry. You know, I've been teaching you guys that for decades here. That's what's going on in our text. Verse 3, look at what verse 3 says. Exodus 32, 3. And all the people broke them off. Exodus 32, 4. Verse 4, please. And he received them at their hand. He fashioned it, made a God, brought it unto them. Exodus 32, uh, 5. I want to walk this through briefly. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, tomorrow is a feast unto the Lord. Aaron felt pretty good about this idol because he had calmed the beast down. Now they're all in rebellion against God. He's promoting this false God as if it's true, putting it on a pedestal. And now tomorrow, guess what we're getting ready to do? Another recapitulation. What do you mean, Pastor? Don't you remember? I shared with you back in chapter 24 how that when God called the men up to see his glory, they were able to sit in fellowship and eat and drink with God. Do you guys remember that? They ate and drank with God and he did not cover them. He allowed them to see his glory. Are y'all keeping up with me? This is why you got to understand narrative theology. You got to understand the narrative and its continuity. A few chapters back, the true and the living God has brought leadership into his presence. They are eating and drinking and enjoying God. Now they have created a false God and they're going to eat and drink in his presence. Y'all see the parallels? Look at the next verse. Verse 6, and they rose up early tomorrow and offered burnt offering, peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and to drink, and they rose up to play. That's repeated over and over again. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17. Pull it up. I got you for another 20 minutes. Listen to what 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says. Paul explains this. Um, uh, go, this is, this is it's, it's earlier down in the 1 Corinthians 10 text. I want to make sure that we actually uh, capture this point. It's extremely critical in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 
Um, maybe verse 7. Look at verse 7. 1 Corinthians 10, 7. Uh, the Apostle Paul is addressing that. Yeah, here it is. Neither be ye idolaters. That's what we're dealing with, right? As some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and what? Rose up. to Now, rising up to play is a euphemism for bacchaline debauchery. Bacchalian debauchery. Some of y'all don't know that, but you should. The Bacchus god of the Romans was the god of fertility and pleasure of wine and drunkenness and sexual orgies. Did it come home? All right, so I'm going I'm to I'm drill down into this. Give me, go back to our text. I may only stay on point number one today because there's so much to deal with. Go back to our text and notice what our text says over in verse 6, uh, the latter part. They did eat and drink and they rose up to what? Now look at verse 7. And in verse 7, and the Lord said unto Moses, get you down for your people, which you brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. All right, so I want you to hold on to that. This is called narrative theology. After you laugh, get serious. Because this is narrative theology. This is where people don't go, go deep. God's people are Moses' people in God's eyes. Because God has made Moses the mediator. Once you're made the mediator, you are representing God at both angles. The role of the high priest is to represent God to the people and the people to God. Did not teach you for several weeks that Moses has entered into a mediatorial process? Are the people of God the people of the Lord Jesus? Isn't that what he said? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So whenever you are in a mediatorial role, you are representing the people. Even if the people are stupid and rebellious, you're still representing them. However, what God is doing with Moses is drawing Moses deep into a relationship with him. And he's saying, Moses, I want you to feel what I feel. Since you are the man who now must lead them to the promised land, I want you to feel what I feel. And what that means, not only is Moses going to feel compassion because he's going to lay it out, but he's going to also feel righteousness. That's what's about to happen here. Are you guys keeping up with me? And all leaders who represent God must understand the role of mediation at the level of being prophetic and priestly. Haven't I taught you that? To be priestly is to have an understanding and mind of reconciliation. Would you agree with that? Moses is about to plead with God. Is he not? Lord, have mercy on them. And, and if not, kill me. Isn't that an allusion to our master? And then God's going to tell Moses, hey, look, leave that alone. That's my business. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I'll show justice on whom I shall show justice. Moses, you don't get to play God. You don't get to choose who's going to have mercy and not. Am I making some sense? But something is about to happen here that is worthy of our observation because Moses does exactly that. He actually gets down. He goes on down. This is a phenomenal thing. He goes on down. Look at it over in verse, uh, verse number, um, 
verse number 19. Look at it over in verse number 19. Verse 19, Exodus 22. And it came to pass as soon as he came nigh unto the camp. That's Moses. The first thing he did was what? Saw the calf. So he had seen now what God said they had done. Because if you go back to the account, the account says the children of Israel has turned away from me. That means they have left the path. They have departed out of the way. Who is the way? I am the way, the truth, and the light. So when you depart out of the path, you're leaving Christ. There's no one coming to the Father but by him. When you leave Jesus, you're out of the way. Moses was told by God, they're way out of the way. Now Moses is seeing why. They have exchanged the glory of the true and living God and exchanged it for an idol made by men. This is Romans chapter 1, verse 21. You guys know that, right? Y'all know what Paul teaches here concerning where we are today. Once you change the image of the true and the living God, you destroy culture, do you not? Because once you change the image of the true and the living God, God gives men and women up to a reprobate mind. And now we're engaging in the kind of thing that's being celebrated today. Did y'all hear what I just stated? That's Romans chapter 1. And notice what it says. He saw the calf and the dancing. See that? Be careful. There is a place for dancing, but be careful. Because some dancing does not please God. Especially when it's attached to idolatry and bacchalaying debauchery. If your dancing is simply an expression of the lust of your flesh and your joyful engagement in the Bacchalean debauchery and it doesn't glorify God, motive or action, this is nothing but demon expression. Did y'all hear what I just stated? I want it to come home clearly to you. I told you this is a defining mark. I'm getting ready to show you why in a moment. Notice what the text says. He was hot. And he cast the tables out of his hand and he broke them beneath the mount. You guys see that? Moses had a little temper, didn't he? Did Moses have a little temper? Did Moses have a little temper? God has a temper. Our God is a consuming fire. He's a jealous God. Didn't he just tell him a couple weeks ago? I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the nigga. See, when you got a husband that's jealous, you should, look, you better be cool. I'm talking about godly jealousy. I'm not talking foolishness. I'm talking godly jealousy. And if he's not jealous, then you're in trouble too because he doesn't care about you. Now you got your work to do, sis. Because a good man ought to have grounds to be jealous because he's going to lay down his life. But if you don't give him any grounds to lay down his life, then he ain't going to be jealous for you. I'm letting you know. Did y'all hear what I just said? It's called covenant. It's called covenant. Notice what he says. And he cast the tables out of his hand and break them beneath the mount. Look at verse 20. And he took the calf. He took the calf, which they had made, and burnt it in the fire and ground it to powder and strawed it upon the water and made the children of Israel to drink. Do you see that? So let me help you briefly with that. This is another whole message. Because what Moses did by the Spirit of God was undo the unreality of the false God that they had fabricated in their mind and then manifested in the flesh of which they were attributing to the true and the living God. And God said, no, demolish that idol so that they might know who the true and the living God is. 
This is really interesting because what we're dealing with is alchemy here at the mystic level. I'm teaching some of us this now who are keeping up with me in this woke doctrine stuff. Alchemy is the mixing of metals and the combining of elements to take one form of a thing to turn it into another. Alchemy is a, a legitimate science, but when you mix it with witchcraft and you mix it with technology and you mix it with doctrines of demons, the whole thing is to transform one thing into another. And it's a process of constantly mixing. Y'all keeping up with me? I'm going somewhere. There is an alchemy going on at the technological, at the witchcraft level, at the practical level, at the scientific level, at the theological level right now in our world where men and women are gradually and incrementally being changed into the image of the beast as I speak to you right now. You got time for me? See, these things that are written were written for our foretime, for our learning. It's happening to you right now. And all of us, in part, are significantly are being toxified with this alchemy. Because it's scientific, it's bioscientific, it's, it's, it's a high-tech process of transing people. Transing people. Transing food. Transing the environment. Transing everything. In every part of the environment, we are under transformation. This is why people are sick. This is why our children have already had inserted into their head all kinds of toxins injected. And now they don't know whether they're boys or girls or men or women. And this all started with lies. It's in your medical industry big time. It's massive. And all you have to do is say, Lord, open my eyes. Because he'll show you how the devil is working in every system to have a new church. It's called a global church of men and women that are transhuman. Even if it means killing up billions of people. And that's what you're going through right now. It's being done technologically through your immersion into the technology of the metaverse and your mind is being transformed and unhinged from reality so you can't think straight y'all know what i'm talking about so you're meeting people right now who are willing to entertain irrational thoughts about reality irrational thoughts about themselves irrational thoughts about things that are so empirically obvious that you have to be an absolute fool to not see it for what it is now you can be sympathetic because the vast majority of people are subject to this by hoodwink, by trichanery, by deception. And we are all somewhat culpable of it because we have not been really discerning in the area of our submission to the true and the living God. But what we've been watching for decades is the transformation. And we might have a little bit of concern here and a little bit of concern there, but it's so massive now that it's, it's, it's unavoidable. But we don't have an answer for it for Christians because most Christians are simply operating out of a neo-Egyptian calf god. Not the true and the living God. They are not serious about the Bible. The word of God is warning about this stuff. Y'all keeping up with me? We are here now. 
This is a kind of tribulation that if you don't believe it, it's, you're, you're doomed. You're doomed. Because the numbers are going to proliferate as we talked on Friday. Because nothing will stop unless it's stopped. See, because what they're doing is they're constantly doing the alchemy. This is witchcraft. This goes way back into Gnosticism in the second and third century. It's a combination of false doctrine with a false pseudoscience mechanism along with power dynamics. In our present day, it's technology. And all of the structures are working together to create this neo-new man of transhumanism. From the child to the adult. That's what you just saw in our text. Now let me see if I can make it good on this. May God have mercy on you as you comprehend it. So we have seen a revolt against the true God, not only in our nation and Western culture, but around the world. But certainly in our nation, we're leading in this deception. And this is what point number two calls the curse of what? False religious experience. Would you agree? So point A, the self-generated hype and frenzy. That's the dancing and playing that they were doing. Now look over at verse 25. Go, go to verse 25. I want to work this through. I've got a few more minutes. Look at verse 25. And when Moses saw that the people were, what's the word? All right, plant your feet. It's time to learn something. It's time to learn something. So now if you were reading your Bible carefully from Genesis up to this time, you would have seen two cases of nakedness that would have laid down for you the prophetic warning here. If you're reading your Bible carefully, this is what we mean, a linear progression of revelation, the continuity of the unfolding of the person and work of Christ from Genesis to Revelation. Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It's written of me. There's none good, no, not one. Christ is the only righteous one, and the rest of us need him. And where we live life without Christ, we're going to be subject to self-deception. The first nakedness was what God warned Adam and Eve not to succumb to. Who told you you were naked? That's Genesis chapter 3, verse 4 and 5. For those of you who don't keep up with my teaching, you need to get it now. The snake was able to actually get Adam and Eve to worship him rather than worship the true and the living God. And the snake, Genesis 3, 1, is the naked creature. Did I tell you that? He doesn't have hair. He doesn't have a covering. A snake is naked. He doesn't have hands. He doesn't have feet. A snake is naked. When you and I don't have any clothes on, we're more like the snake. Am I making some sense? Particularly, you know, human beings, unless you got a little bit of your Neanderthal friends going on, you got a bunch of hair going on. But the point is, <laughs> some of us are like that. The point is, is that nakedness means you don't have a covering. Adam and Eve had the covering of the spirit of God when he created them innocent. And when they rebelled against God, what did they do? They exchanged the glory of the true and the living God. And they bought the tree of the knowledge of evil so that they could become gods and they became naked. That's nakedness number one. And God covered them with coats of skin. And when you and I are not covered in the righteousness of Christ, we're naked. The second nakedness that came along was when our dear brother, 
Noah and the new Adam's family had finished the work of new creation. And, Ad, and Noah just got a little bit, you know, distracted about the quality of the wine that he had made. And he did the right thing. He didn't walk around naked like these folks are doing for a whole month. With no shame. That's what it means to be a harlot. In Proverbs chapter 7, a harlot is a woman who walks around naked with no shame. Ass out. Titties out. No shame. Am I telling the truth? And they're proud about it. That's Proverbs 7, 9, 23. That's Isaiah chapter 4. That's Revelation chapter 2 and 3. That's Revelation chapter 18. God has something to say about the harlot society because humanity was once in a relationship with God. And God gave his son. And now humanity says, I want this. This is why God has a controversy with the whole world. Am I making some sense? Number two was with Noah because his boy Ham, who was the father of the land of Canaan, I'm going to Canaan! pulled back the tent and tried to show his brothers the nakedness of his daddy, which was a symbol of perversion. And his two brothers knew the gospel and they got a covering and walked backwards and covered their daddy. Love covers a multitude of sins. And then when Noah woke up out of his stupor, he prophesied of the land of Canaan that it would be cursed. He didn't curse black people. He cursed Canaan. Canaan is a society of which God said in Leviticus 18 through 22, do not look upon another person's nakedness. It is toweba with God. It is an abomination to God. Am I making some sense? And when he started that line of prohibition in chapter 18, he said a father must never look upon his daughter's nakedness. His daughter must never look upon his father's nakedness. His son should never look upon his mother's nakedness. You shall not look upon each other's nakedness because that is an abomination. Why? Because we know what it leads to. We know what it leads to. It's going to lead to fornication from an idolatrous heart because now we're man-centered and the only thing we want is pleasure. And our pleasure should be God. God should be the ultimate pleasure. And righteousness should be the outcome of a relationship with the true and the living God. That means we keep boundaries. That means we keep categories. That means we keep order and structure. That means we know what a man is. We know what a woman is. We know what a child is. We know what a husband is. We know what a wife is. We know what a daughter is. We know what these things are. And the Holy God grants us the ability to live among each other because we keep boundaries. And the goal of the wicked one is to destroy every boundary. Anything that is binary is being assaulted today. Did y'all hear what I just stated? There... The logic is flawed. There's no such thing as a his and a her as being the same thing. There's no such logic as a he, she. That is is an either or proposition. 
That is not a both and proposition. I'm struggling when I come to the bathroom door and it goes he, she. I'm looking for another bathroom. Because I'm trying to keep my mind. I'm trying to keep my mind. I know what categories are. It's either a he or a she that's going up in that bathroom. I'm not crazy and I'm not going crazy because God has given me a sound mind. When Moses saw their nakedness for Aaron had made them naked. Isn't that terrible? Religion will make you more naked than anything. Because what most religions do is stop you from thinking. They just want you to feel. Man, I had a great time in church today. What did he preach? I don't know, but it felt good. That's your Bacchalian party. That's your Bacchalian debauchery. It starts in church. That's why they get to running around and when the lights is off, they're doing all kind of crazy things. This goes back to Catholicism, Greek orthodoxy. And, and now it's everywhere. Y'all know what I'm talking about. And now they want to do it in the public. I'm telling you, religion now has gone public. Your world is religious. Everything that they are teaching you today about the woke doctrine, which is another alchemistic set of ideological constructs, which is a bunch of lies, is nothing but religion. Okay, are you hearing me? It's in order to create a one world religion and everybody is the same, whether you are a man or a woman or a child or an adult. That means everybody can poke each other or whatever else you do. You see how difficult it is? when you stuck in the male-female category. Because somebody was talking about scissors the other day, and I said, scissors? What is scissors? Some of y'all, now which one of y'all are like me? I don't even know what scissors are. Raise your hand if you don't. You're blessed. You are blessed. You are super blessed if you don't know what scissors are. How many of y'all know what scissors are? See there? Point number two, let me wrap this up here. I'm going to touch on this, and I'm going to come back. There are three subpoints in our outline here under point number two. Self-generated hype and frenzy, that's false religion. Sexual perversion, emerge it from it, emerge it from it. And a separation of the righteous. A separation of the righteous. Look at verse 26 through 28. And Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who's on the Lord's side? There it is. This is anytime the gospel faithfully preached, it's dividing. That's right. It's a two-edged sword. We are thankful that people come into this community, but I know every time I preach, somebody's going to be offended. And that's the way it is. But, but hold on, hold on, slow down, because I, I know I hear you got, well, all that. You need to have compassion. Because apart from the grace of God, you would leave too. I'm simply stating the point. I don't want my kids coming in here and leaving just because dad offended them. Now, I am going to offend you. But the Bible's very clear, right? Deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And if God is your friend, he's going to let you know you're wrong. But I I want you, if you're going to celebrate people leaving, put your own cousin's face there, your auntie, your uncle, and all that. See, this is what I want to stop us from doing. I want us to be sober about things. It's very important because church folk are drunk all the time. They're self-righteous and hypocritical. Am I telling the truth? Right. Except you don't want it to happen to your people. I don't want it to happen. I don't want my kids to be lost. I do not want them going to hell. 
but I, God help me, I'm not going to compromise the truth when they sit in front of me. I'm telling you, son and daughter, without Christ, you're going to hell. Just got to let you know. Right. God gave too much for us to just throw him away by a text or by an email or by a small offense. Get over it and submit yourself to the true and the living God and be saved by grace. Saved by grace. God is a merciful God, is he not? Look at verse 26 and 27. Moses said in the, uh, in the gate, he said, who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. All the sons of Levi gathered together unto him. Not all of them, but many of them did because the Levites had the job of mediating between God and the people. Now God has a judgment he's going to execute and the Levites have to enter into that. Listen to the next verse. And he said unto them, thus said the Lord God of Israel, put every man his sword by his side and go in and out from gate to gate throughout the camp and slay every man his brother and every man his companion and every man his neighbor. See the problem? You know what God is doing? He's cutting out sin. This is how the word cotomy in, in our medical terminology means to cut out. So when you have cancer, they have to cut it out. Right? God's cutting out sin so that the body can live. Am I making some sense? You know, when the cancer gets bad, we got to cut. And that's what he's doing here. And this is what happens in our lives too. Notice what he says in verse 28. 32, 28, please. And all the children of Levi did according to the words of Moses and there fell of the people in that day. How many people? It could have been 300,000. There was only 3,000. And these were the people who stood in open rebellion against Moses when he came down. See, Moses came down. He saw the people in their arrogant, pompous, sort of staunch, open open rebellion against Moses. And he said, oh, okay, I see, I see. Y'all gonna just do what you're gonna do. It's time to clean house. And when 3,000 people died on the first day, then everybody starts to repent. Y'all got that? Yeah, this is the father chastening those whom he loves. That's how God works. Look at the next verse. For Moses said, consecrate yourselves Today to the Lord and every man upon his son and upon his brother that he may bestow upon you a what? In other words, if those who are on Moses' side, side does not engage in excising and cutting out the cancer, no blessing is coming. See, because God knows sometimes we got to be wounded deeply before we listen to him. They had to consecrate themselves. In other words, their role as priests had to be redefined again. You don't do what the people say. You do what God says. And if you do what God says, the people will be saved. Because now, now Moses is going to mediate with God. Is he not? That brings us to our last point. I'm going to touch on it and come back later. Point number four. Notice what it says. It's extremely important. The, uh, point number three, rather, the commitment to what? Mediation. Look over at verse 30. I love this. Come on, Moses. Come on. Verse 30. And it came to pass on them all that Moses said unto people, to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up unto the Lord pre-adventure. I shall make an atonement for your sin. Go, Moses. In the name of Jesus, go, Moses. Now Moses is feeling like God. 
because God has these crazy people that he loves, but his righteousness has to be satisfied. Moses now is under the obligation of standing between God and the people. And now he's occupying the position of one man in the universe. That man is the Lord Jesus Christ, who himself became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Am I making some sense? Moses is going to, I will make an atonement for you. Not Moses, Christ. Let's get some lessons here. I'm, a, I'm a, still a little more time in close. Notice what he says in verse 31. Here it is. Verse 31. And Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold and I made them drink it, oh God. And he did, didn't he? That's a lesson. He unreeled their false reality and he made them to drink it. Now that took some time to smash the wood of the idol that was shaped and then gilded by gold. It took some time to break it down and smash the gold and grind it to silver. I mean, grind it to powder. Are you keeping up with me? They did not have an electric grinder with them. It took some time. All of this must be understood by inference that this was a long day of judgment. They are observing what Paul teaches in 2 Corinthians 10, that we are to tear down everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of Christ and bring everyone into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Now they got to drink in their false God. Drink your lie. Drink your lie so that they embed it, so that they absorb it, so that they feel it, so that they can know internally the evil that they engaged in. Did that make some sense? Right. Sometimes that's what God will make you do. He'll make you eat your foolishness. He'll make you drink your foolishness. You can't get away from it. You can't get away from it. It's really sad, but that's so. And notice what it says. Now, if you will, God, forgive their what? And if not, do what? I pray thee out of thy book, which you have written. Is this not an allusion to the work of Christ? Did not God blot out our transgressions as far as the east is from the west? Because as a father that pities his children, so the Lord pities us. Did he not do it by the death of Christ? Every man and woman that trusts God, you're only saved because God blotted out your sins in Jesus. Yes. I'm so glad I have a Savior, don't you? I'm so glad I have a Savior. I'm so glad that Christ stepped in my place because the wrath of God was hanging over my head. Justice was ready to cut me down and God would have been right to do it. And Jesus took my place. Now there's a truth you need to learn here. Everybody's not going to be saved. And God saves whom he wants to when he will. Salvation is the prerogative of a righteous God. It's never the consequence of your merit. What Moses is asking for now that he has executed a limited righteous judgment is mercy. And mercy is never earned. God will remain right if he doesn't show people mercy. Did y'all hear me? 
If people go to hell, it's because they want to. No one's going to hell that doesn't want to go to hell. Learn this, child of God, because you mess your doctrine up here at Grace too frequently with that stuff. Get it right. God doesn't arbitrarily throw, arbitrarily throw anyone to hell. He's not just throwing babies into hell. I taught y'all that last week, didn't I? There's a judgment thrown before hell is executed. People are in Hades now. Confinement. The judgment is on the last day where God will prove himself to have been right and men and women will have been proven to be wrong. And the reason why folk will go to hell is because they died without Christ. And they died because they did not want him. Did you guys hear me? And therefore their names were never written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world. This is why God's going to say what he says. Look at it. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, and if not, blot me out, I pray thee out of the book which you have written. See, Moses doesn't get to actually have that kind of conditional relationship. Moses ain't Jesus. Scoot over, boy, you just a type. Y'all know what a type is? A type is a picture of my wife. It's not my wife. I'm not supposed to love the picture. I'm supposed to love the person. Jesus is the person. He's the reality. He's the substance. He's the essence. It's all right, though. I get Moses. Do you get Moses? He greater love hath no man than this, than that he laid down his life for his friend. That's real love. I got a feeling that Moses knew God wasn't going to kill him anyway. See, when you know God well, you can push the envelope especially when you're occupying typology that's rooted in love. God knows Moses couldn't solve these people's problem. God has somebody else that will solve their problem. But God is about to teach one more thing that I want to close on, and then we'll come back and pick up in our, in our study. Look at verse 34. Here's what God says. This is important. Oh, yeah, here it is, verse 32. And the Lord said unto Moses, Whosoever has sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. You guys got that? So I want to help you and I'm going to close. This is really simple. This is not hard. I really want our people at Grace to think deeply and be sanctified in your mind. If a man dies without Christ, he dies in his sin. If he dies in his sin, God will say, you have sinned against me. Did you hear what I just stated? If a man dies without Christ, he has died in his sin. If he dies in his sin, God will say, you have sinned against me. Did you hear what I stated? I want you to get this. This is such a beautiful truth. So God is not executing wrath right there at the moment. This here is called delayed wrath. Why is it delayed? It's because God is going to show temporal mercy to these very rebels that deserve to be destroyed. He's going to show temporal mercies in order that they might repent and trust Christ before they die. Did y'all hear what I just stated? This is why Jesus, when he hung on the cross, said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It was a temporal forgiveness because of an outrageous crime committed on that day. God the Father would have had the right to wipe out the whole nation of Israel. And God delayed his judgment, which is an act of mercy, in order that somebody who's a fool today might come to his senses tomorrow or next week or next month or the year later. 
every day that the sword of justice does not swing. It's a possibility for a man or woman to have found their name written in the Lamb's book of life. And if the name is written in the Lamb's book of life, God will have blotted out all your transgressions because Christ will have covered them. It will have been as if you never, ever sinned ever before. And it will have been like you obeyed all of God's law from the time that you breathed until the time you breathe your last breath. You become absolutely the righteousness of God in Christ. There is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? God is the one that justifies. Christ is the one that died. Yea, rather, has risen again and is seated at the right hand of God as a mediator for his people. An enthroned Savior ought to be the grounds for which you and I live every day as vessels of mercy, as vessels of mercy. And even if I don't know today, if I'm a believer, if he lets me live today, I know that was mercy. I know it was mercy. I know I get to work it out tomorrow. That crazy preacher told me without Christ, I'm going to hell. I got to work that through for the rest of my life. Amen and amen. Amen. 